Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and I've got Megan Spires back on for another segment. Megan, welcome back. Thanks, Swami. Great to be here. All right, Megan, let's dive right on into this topic. Uh, let's go real basic. What, When we say toxic alcohols, what are we talking about? When we talk about toxic alcohols, we're really referring to two big ones, which are ethylene glycol and methanol. Ethylene glycol is really just found in antifreeze. That's typically what we see for ethylene glycol. And methanol can be found in a variety of different products. The most common in the U.S. is windshield viper fluid, but it can also be found in solid cooking fuels. And it's a component of moonshine, which is particularly relevant if you practice in a place like on the reservation where ethanol uh, isn't allowed. It's also a component in model car or racing car fuel. And there were a couple deaths in some teenagers recently in Tennessee who mixed this with Mountain Dew into something called Dewshine. And unfortunately, they, they didn't do well. The other one that people talk about is isopropyl alcohol, which can be found in rubbing alcohol and hand sanitizers. And of the three, it's the most intoxicating. So it might be the one that people most commonly drink uh, in order to become inebriated if they can't get their hands on ethanol. It's metabolite as acetone, which causes ketosis without acidosis. So although it can result in a hemorrhagic gastritis, it really doesn't cause a lot of systemic toxicity. So we don't consider it the same as ethylene glycol and methanol. So the big two that we're going to be worried about in the ED are the ethylene glycol and the methanol, as you mentioned. And I think it's important for us to note that the ethylene glycol itself and the methanol itself are not toxic. So the parent compound, not that toxic. It's the metabolites that we get worried about. We're going to dive more into that later on in the podcast, but just something to make sure everyone's clear on. Now, the two things that we talked about offline that I think are very interesting and good things for us to know is that in kids, ethylene glycol, even methanol, you can sometimes get these accidental exposures. So the kid is exploring, they try a little bit by mistake, parent finds them, and then they get worked up. In adults, though, these are unlikely to be unintentional ingestions. They're more likely that this was an attempt at trying to harm oneself. So if a patient comes in and and they tell you, I took a swig of one of these ethylene glycol or methanol, you take care of the medical side, but they're probably going to need a psychiatric assessment also. And you don't want to let those patients leave the emergency department before that happens because they are going to be at a higher risk. So we have to be very careful about making sure that we do that assessment as well and not just focusing on the medical part of it. Let's move from there. Let's move from what the toxic alcohols are. Let's talk about diagnosis. Patients are going to come in and we frequently see patients that are intoxicated and all of these substances can cause a picture that looks like alcohol intoxication. How do we differentiate these? Unless the patient tells me I took ethylene glycol or I took methanol, how do I know that one of these other alcohols is at play? Yeah, that's certainly true. The if you have a high clinical suspicion or a history that's that's pretty telling, you know, you're going to certainly rely on that. But in the absence of that, we really have to look at labs for this diagnosis. The two main labs we're looking for is an osm gap and then the anion gap metabolic acidosis. The osm gap is something that occurs earlier in toxicity because it results from the parent compound itself. So not from the toxic metabolites, but from the ethylene glycol or methanol itself. The labs that you want to get to calculate the osm gap are the measured serum osms. And then you also need a basic metabolic panel and an ethanol level. And from the basic metabolic panel, you're using the sodium, glucose, and the BUN. And all of those have to be drawn at the same time. And then you subtract the calculated from the measured and you get your osm gap. 
The thing to know about the Ozen gap is that it's actually a terrible test. The range of normal is, is pretty big. And so you don't know what a person's baseline is. We say that an elevated Ozen gap, something to worry about is greater than 10. But unfortunately, because that baseline range is so variable, you can have someone who had a toxic ingestion who actually ends up with an Ozen gap that's less than 10. The way that we really should use this is that a low Ozen gap cannot be used to rule out toxicity, but a high gap, especially something greater than 40, should certainly increase your concern and, and, and make you really worried about a toxic alcohol. So early on after ingestion, osm gap is going to be high, or at least we hope it will be high to tip us off. A normal osm gap is non-sensitive. It doesn't rule out the disease, but a high osm gap virtually rules this disease in, and we should be very concerned of that. So it's very specific, not very sensitive. And again, the size of that osm gap is really going to depend on how soon after their ingestion they present to the emergency department, how soon after that ingestion you're getting your blood work sent off. Because as every minute passes, your body is metabolizing some of this. And as it metabolizes, the osm gap is going to come down. So osm gap high early on. And then you mentioned the anion gap metabolic acidosis. Let's move to that. How does that form? And when should we expect to see it? So the anion gap occurs, as you mentioned, as you're metabolizing the parent compounds. So for ethylene glycol, you're developing glycolic acid and oxalic acid are two of the main uh, toxic metabolites. And the glycolic acid is really what's responsible for the metabolic acidosis. And then as far as methanol goes, it's formic acid. So as your osm gap is falling, your anion gap uh, is rising from those toxic metabolites. The other lab finding, which you would love to have, but unfortunately are really not ever going to get in the ER, is the level. So you would love to have an uh, ethylene glycol level or a methanol level, but that's really not something that's available unless you have a fancy tox lab in your emergency department. One test that is available in some EDs is a volatile panel, and I just want to caution you in in knowing that the volatile panel does test for methanol and isopropyl alcohol, but it does not test for ethylene glycol. So again, not really that helpful in ruling out a toxic alcohol ingestion. So very similar to the osm gap, if it's positive, you get that volatile panel, you have it, you use it, and it's positive for methanol, that's great. If it's negative for everything, ethylene glycol is still out there as a possibility. So That's these right. are going to be breaking down over time. We're going to be trying to catch it. Now, Megan, you said the osm gap falls as the time from ingestion goes on. The anion gap metabolic acidosis starts to rise as time goes on. Is there some magic point where both of these are normal and we're just screwed if we happen to get the labs at that point? Yeah, I suppose that that, that could happen. I haven't in personally theory. experienced that yet, but, um, okay, but in theory. Good. Let's talk about what these compounds actually do. We haven't really talked about that. Ethylene glycol, it breaks down into these other acids, the oxalic acid, the glycolic acid, the methanol breaks down into formic acid. What do those metabolites do to our body that makes them so dangerous? So as far as, um, you know, one of the classic findings for ethylene glycol, in addition to that, both of these have caused the metabolic acidosis, uh, the oxalic acid combines with calcium and forms crystals in the kidneys. So acute kidney injury or renal failure is certainly something you're looking for for ethylene glycol toxicity. Again, it's something that's going to occur later and hopefully you've caught these before that occurs, but that certainly is, is a classic part of the toxicity for ethylene glycol. Patients can usually require hemodialysis due to this kidney injury, but oftentimes they will recover and not be on dialysis long-term. Methanol, the formic acid from methanol is a mitochondrial toxin and it classically results in vision loss. Uh, on a board exam, you might you know, have a patient describing a snowfield vision. Unfortunately, this is something that does not usually uh, recover. 
methanol toxicity, um, the formic acid can also cause basal ganglia injury and pancreatitis as well. All right. So these are the things that we're going to be looking for. You said once they have vision loss, we're, you know, they're, they're kind of screwed. We're not going to be able to get that back. The AKI, something that we can still treat. Hopefully we catch it before these things develop. Let's say that we have a patient who comes in, they tell us that they use one of these substances, or we happen to get labs and we find a huge osm gap. Their osm gap is 50. So now we're alerted and we're saying, well, I know that's not normal. The patient's acting like they're drunk. I have to be worried about ethylene glycol or methanol. So now I've gotten to a presumptive diagnosis. What's my treatment here? Now, aside from I'm going to call my toxicology consultant, what is the treatment that I should be starting? So the two main treatments for toxic alcohol ingestions are femepazole and hemodialysis. Femepazole blocks alcohol dehydrogenase. So that's the first metabolic step in that pathway leading to the toxic metabolites. So if the patients present early and they don't yet have the anti-gap metabolic acidosis, femepazole is really all you're, you're probably going to need. Practically speaking, though, what's the most common presentation isn't someone that comes in and we've caught it with a high osm gap. It's a patient who can't really give a good history and they present with a metabolic acidosis with a a gap, with an anion gap. And so for those patients, my kind of practical approach to those when you don't have a high clinical suspicion initially is to fluid resuscitate them, maybe give them some thiamine as well, and then get all the labs that you need to sort of sort out this anion gap metabolic acidosis. So I would certainly get everything you need to calculate the osm gap. And then I would also get either urinary ketones or if you have it, a serum beta-hydroxybutyrate. Look for a lactate as another cause. And then, you know, think about the other toxic stuff like an aspirin level or an iron level if clinically appropriate. After you resuscitate those patients, if either, you know, your suspicion now is higher or the metabolic metabolic acidosis hasn't gone away, those are patients that I would then go on to treat. All right. So if I have a patient with a large osm gap because I caught them early, I'm going to start femepazole. I'm still going to get a bunch of these lab tests, especially things like aspirin and acetaminophen to make sure they didn't overdose on something else concomitantly. But femepazole might be enough to stop the transformation of the toxic alcohol into the metabolites that are going to cause damage. And I might be able to save the patient that way. More likely is that I'm going to get some labs. I'm going to find this metabolic acidosis with an anion gap, and I'm going to go through either my mud piles or my cult or whatever mnemonic you are using to figure this out. And I'm going to serially eliminate each of these things. And I'm going to be left with toxic alcohols as a possibility. And in that case, now we have gone past the parent compound being in the system. We've got lots of metabolites floating around if we've got that anion gap. And here the femepazole is going to be less helpful because we've already had that transformation. Would you still give the femepazole if I found them at that point where they've already got that metabolic acidosis? Always give femepazole because you still might have some of the parent compound there and you'll prevent its metabolism to the toxic metabolites. So you give femepazole, but then when you have this refractory anion gap metabolic acidosis or you have end organ injury like the kidney injury for ethylene glycol or complaints of vision loss, uh, you're really going to want to think about hemodialysis. So hemodialysis can remove both the parent compound and the toxic metabolite. That's our other component of the treatment for toxic alcohols. And the other thing is, even if you're giving hemodialysis, you're still continuing to give femepazole during that time. We dose it more frequently during dialysis, but but it's still indicated. 
All right. So I think that's a really good algorithm to think about. We're going to go through all of those different possibilities for the anion gap metabolic acidosis. But again, if we're left with this as the possibility, we got to call our renal folks. We got to call our dialysis team. We're probably going to have to put that hemodialysis catheter in. So we have to be thinking about all of these different logistical steps in order to get to the point we need to get the patient taken care of. So we started from Epizol. We have started the process for hemodialysis. Now, I know the answer to this question. It's always an entertaining one. If I don't have Femepazole, what's my alternate? Uh, ethanol. How much ethanol do I have to get this guy to drink to keep him in a safe zone? Or we can only use IV ethanol in these cases? You know, you can you can use um, regular, you, know, you can have the patient drink alcohol. What, what you want is an ethanol level greater than 100. This isn't the ideal antidote. And that's really because, you know, number one, everyone metabolizes ethanol a little bit differently depending on what their baseline use is. And so it's kind of hard to gauge when they're going to be at the safe level. Um, the other thing is, you know, you don't, no one wants an intoxicated person in their emergency department. So behaviorally, it can be an issue and it can also cause side effects like hypoglycemia. All right. So if we don't have to use the ethanol, we have Femepazole in hand, we're going to use it. There are some folks who listen to this podcast where Femepazole is not an antidote they have available. And so then ethanol is going to be your go-to either IV, PO. Based on what Megan's telling me, I feel like this is a patient I'm going to want to intubate and give them that ethanol through an NG tube just to avoid the behavioral issues. But again, that might not be a possibility for you. So if you don't have Femepazole, you can use ethanol as a substitute, difficult to titrate, difficult to control the patient. Femepazole is more ideal. And then you're going to be moving towards hemodialysis if you've already got that gap forming. Now, aside from those basic steps of management, Megan, what else do we have to be thinking about in terms of the management, in terms of other drugs that we should be thinking about using? So adjuncts uh, for ethylene glycol would be pyridoxine, magnesium, and thiamine. And for methanol, it's folate or leucovorin, um, depending on if the patient's really sick and you want the activated folate already. These adjuncts really help you shunt the metabolism away from the toxic metabolites to some less toxic uh, compounds. You know, there's not great studies that show that these really affect outcomes, but but certainly I would put these on board if if I had uh, if I have them available and I'm thinking of it. Pretty low risk of giving someone a couple of vitamins and some magnesium. Exactly. All right. So, and I can never keep these straight. Now you do have to keep them straight for the boards, but uh, I'm usually just giving all of the above. I'm giving pyridox and thiamine and folate. And when I say usually, this is what I tell my residents to do in these cases, because it's going to be hard to remember exactly which ones to use unless you've got your tox consultant on the phone. But if you give all of them, again, if the patient has ethylene glycol toxicity and you give them some folic acid, you probably haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, that's fine. The only thing I would say is just, if you can only remember one thing, Certainly remember the femepazole because that's going to be more important. One other thing just to think about is methanol has a very, very long half-life when it's blocked with femepazole. And that's because in order to eliminate methanol from the body, when ADH is blocked with femepazole, you actually have to breathe it off. And so if you have a patient who has a really high methanol level, sometimes we think about using dialysis uh, for those patients, even in the absence of an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Um, it's just kind of a case-by-case -case basis. Certainly, it'd be safe to still treat them with femepazole. It's just going to be a pretty extended time that that's going to have to happen. A single dose of femepazole is going to buy you 12 hours to figure out what's going on. And I think that's a great tip right there because I'm sure there are people who work at a place where femepazole is available, but dialysis is not. And so the femepazole really can buy your patient the critical amount of time so that you can transfer them somewhere where the dialysis can be done if it's deemed necessary. 
Hey guys, just dropping in for one additional point here that Megan wanted to point out, but we didn't discuss it in the podcast. If the patient already has a refractory metabolic acidosis, Fomepazole isn't really going to be very helpful and you're going to have to go to dialysis right away. All right, back into the podcast. Now, Megan, let's just say, for instance, let's say me, I have to recertify in my boards next year. And again, this is not an area that I feel very comfortable with. And so I come to you and say, Megan, I need to know everything that I need to know for the boards. And I'm not talking about the tox boards here. I'm talking about the EM boards. I need to know everything I need to know about toxic alcohols. Give me a quick summary of the big take-homes from what we've discussed today and the things that are going to be on that test. For the emergency medicine boards, they should actually make this pretty simple. For the ethylene glycol and methanol, you're going to have labs that show an osm gap and probably an anion gap metabolic acidosis. For the ethylene glycol, they're going to put kidney injury in there. They're going to have calcium oxalate crystals. They might show you a picture of some crystals that look like envelopes. For the boards, you know, we didn't talk about this because I don't think it's clinically uh, useful, but they might do something like a have a urine that's fluorescing. And I didn't mention that here because it's not, you know, there's false positives, there's false negatives. And clinically, you shouldn't ever use that to rule in or rule out a diagnosis, but it might be a great pearl for the boards is to have the urine that's fluorescing with ethylene glycol. For methanol, um, again, it's going to be the osm gap, the anion gap metabolic acidosis, and for sure they're going to have some sort of snowfield vision or vision loss. For isopropyl alcohol, the labs that they show you are ketosis without the metabolic acidosis. So you'll have ketones, but no acidosis, and that's classic for isopropyl alcohol. And then the other big thing for the boards is just to remember that the antidote is femepazole, and then hemodialysis in the presence of the metabolic acidosis. And I think those last two points are the ones that everyone really has to get stuck in their head. If you find this diagnosis, antidote, fomepazole, think about hemodialysis. And then, like you said, the labs that you need, the osm gap, that anion gap metabolic acidosis. Every time you see an anion gap metabolic acidosis, think about the toxic alcohols. Is it possible? Sometimes you just ask the patient, right? And and you, you come to the labs, you see it, you ask them, hey, did you by chance drink something that's not ethanol? And they might actually give you the answer and make the diagnosis for you. So you just got to be thinking about it. If you're not thinking about the diagnosis, you're never going to be able to make it. I think that's an excellent review. Megan, anything else that you want to leave the listeners with, or you think that's a pretty good summary of what we need to know? I think that's pretty good. And I think, you know, if you're ever having a question, you ever think that this is on your differential and you haven't ruled it out and you've got a, a bad and I got metabolic acidosis, go ahead and treat with femepazole and then, you know, figure it out later. Yeah. And if you're really distant from this learning, if you, if you just haven't seen a case, if you don't remember this stuff, remember there are tox consultants available 24 hours a day that can help to walk you through this management. They can help you with exactly what labs you need to get. So don't forget to call your local poison center. They are an absolutely invaluable resource and they love these cases. I mean, Megan, if I called you tomorrow with one of these at like two in the morning, you'd be pretty excited, right? <laughs> Maybe if it was more like 11 p.m. <laughs> all right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thanks, Megan. And you can check out more from Megan on Twitter, where her handle is at MBSpires. That's M-B-S-P-Y-R-E-S. And she also tweets from at USC Med Talks. And we're definitely going to have you back on, Megan. There are lots of talks topics that we don't see all the time, but we need to be keyed in on and ready to go with. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mommy. Before we finish up, Megan had one last pearl she wanted to share, but we forgot to get to it in the main podcast. So I'm going to tell you what she told me, and I think this is a fantastic little tip. It's going to make you look really smart. Ethylene glycol can cause a falsely elevated lactate on many blood gas analyzers. 
This is due to the fact that glycolic acid structure closely resembles lactate and subsequently reacts with the assay used in blood gas analyzers. This is typically not a problem on serum lactates. This results in the so-called lactate gap. Basically, you have a positive lactate on your blood gas, you have a negative lactate or a normal lactate on your serum lactate assay. If you see that, if you see that lactate gap, you should have a higher suspicion for ethylene glycol. That's all for the Coriam podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coriam.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.